This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. This week, I have a blockbuster of a conversation with Nikki Tugano, founder of Scene Culture. Scene Culture is aiming to be the moneyball platform for workplaces by enabling unrecognized talent to be seen. Through a powerful founding story loaded with references to psychology and behavioral science, Nikki shows us how scene culture is more than just a 360-degree review. She also hopes for a world where the underappreciated can feel seen and valued, a sentiment in full alignment with this podcast. This episode is on the longer side, and my ordinary introduction summary doesn't do it justice. So please enjoy my discussion with Nikki Tugano. Today on the show, we welcome Nikki Tugano, founder of Scene Culture. Scene Culture is building a diversity, equity, and inclusion platform in place of a talent intelligence platform. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you on the Promise Podcast. So Nikki, you have started this new platform, which is taking aim at the talent intelligence industry. How would you best describe yourself and what it is you're trying to do here? A best way to describe myself is essentially an amalgamation of my background in and my passion for positive psychology, which in other words is also known as the science of well-being, motivation and performance, together with my background in people and culture or HR but also just a genuine drive and conviction to be super studious around what is it that motivates people to be the best they can be and what is it that organizations need to do to create an environment that cultivates that. And ultimately, the way that I see it, it's all about culture. But what about culture? It's when people feel like they're truly acknowledged, recognized and valued for who they are as a human being and a whole person beyond just being a worker or whatever their job title is in that given organization. And ultimately, that's what encapsulates this idea of feeling seen, hence a seen culture. Excellent. Great introduction. Thank you. All right, let's look at the area that you want to play in and the incumbents that are in that space at the moment. So Plenty of major corporations have some kind of talent intelligence platform that underpins a lot of how they look after their employees. So there'll be things like performance management, professional development plans, et cetera, et cetera. At a really high level view, what purpose do these platforms serve for an organization? And what about their employees as well? Yeah, a lot of it is just really trying to understand the skills that empower employees to do their best work and uh, essentially housing a data warehouse of what those skills are such that they can be paired with what opportunities are available within the organization. And so it's a bit like matching people with the right skills to what jobs are available, whether that's 
in recruitment or in internal job mobility. And what that means is helping people move into a new role, whether that's a promotion or into another department and making sure that there's good fit there and alignment in relation to their talent or their talent intelligence and what's available within the organization. And and the idea is that the better that you're able to find the right matches, then the more motivated workers are, for one, because then they have this opportunity to do work that they're good at because it's something that they're highly skilled in. And it also helps, obviously, with performance because if you've got someone highly skilled in a role that really requires that skill, then obviously they're going to perform much better than someone who's not as well skilled. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. Okay, you mentioned that a lot of these are enormous data hubs that capture all of this information. What do these talent intelligence platforms actually measure in order to understand whether someone's a good match or not? Yeah, so a lot of what they measure is, uh, I guess, I would call hard skills required within a role, like um, subject matter expertise or domain expertise is how I would frame it, how good someone is with a specific, let's just say, skill set in, I don't know, UX design capability. And if that's within their skill set versus something that might be a little bit more, and I don't really like to use the term soft skills, but something that's a little bit more like communication skills or presentation skills. All of those things are typically captured, but a lot of the focus does tend to be on those those harder skills and what you would typically see if you're, for instance, looking at a job description, what are the skills needed to perform the role? Excellent. And a follow on from that question as well as ordinarily, how is this information collected? It depends. There are lots of amazing companies out there like Rejig, for instance, and Fuel50 that are talent intelligence platforms that essentially pull data automatically from their existing HR software through integrations and that sort of thing. And it's also something that we do. It can be done automatically through API integrations, just as long as the software allows for it. But also additionally, some of this data can be taken through and often is through surveys. Much of the time, however, those surveys are limited to being self-reported surveys. The survey data out of those self-report surveys are only as good as how honest and accurate (laughs) that person is responding to those survey questions about themselves and We obviously have this bias to want to put our best foot forward when it comes to being assessed in workplace environments. That means that we tend to sometimes overemphasize our skills in certain areas that we want to be recognized for. That actually strikes at a couple of things that resonate with me as a researcher is how do we ask the right questions to get the right responses? But also from a data perspective, there's the very common saying, garbage in, garbage out, right? (laughs) Um, Okay, now we have a good understanding of the problem space that you're trying to play in, or at least the competitive landscape. Let's talk about you before we dive into your product. So talk us through your background, Nikki. How did you go from, I understand in a previous life, you were a HR people and culture professional. You then took a step into teaching positive psychology, and you still do that, and then on to founding Scene Culture. So walk us through that journey. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew that I've always been really interested in understanding human behavior and what motivates people. And so actually, the direction into the field of HR or people and culture 
originated from that. But at the time, I was wondering if I would go into HR or into marketing. Because for me, I've always advocated that they're very much one in the same. Whether you're in HR or marketing, you're essentially out there to try and attract, engage, and retain people, whether that's employees, customers, prospects, whoever it might be. Same process, as long as you really understand that human behavior aspect of what instigates quite a lot of that drive. But I also have this real desire to help people grow and develop. And so as I started to get a little bit more involved and understand the HR world a little bit more, I realized that I had more capacity to do that within the HR field, within learning and development more specifically than I did in marketing at the time. And so that's ultimately what brought me into that role. I loved also being able to be part of not only growing and developing people, but being close to the interplay that happened between them within teams and then how that then had an impact on the overarching culture. I found that so, so interesting to the point where I was like, okay, I'm really into this. I love it so much, but because I was working as an internal HR leader, I'm only really understanding the intricacies of one organization that I work for. I want to know what that's like for many other organizations. And actually, then I moved to consulting in the same space. So instead of previously having been a HR leader, internally working within organizations, I then moved to externally helping other HR leaders as a consultant, helping advise and consult on employee engagement strategies, on leadership, on culture, and employee experience as an overarching sort of umbrella was essentially my jam when it came to consulting. It was really amazing to get that next level of exposure to really understand and recognize what was happening across multiple organizations in multiple industries and even across multiple countries. I didn't learn as much as I thought that I might have though, because actually there were so many common trends that was happening across all of them when it came to how can we better engage, motivate and retain our people. And I was like, this is interesting. I made it quite interesting for me as a consultant, because obviously then it means that you can very much in some ways, repeat a lot of the work that you've done. And ultimately, that's what led me to want to get into the space of technology and using that as a platform to scale impact. Because working as a consultant, I was selling my time, which isn't scalable. (laughs) And I only could interact with a number of different customers at any one time. And I, I really wanted to scale impact. And because I was so interested in seeing all of these trends and templating them with my consulting hat, I was like, okay, now how can I template this using technology and then basically sass it all (laughs) so that obviously one, I can scale impact, but also I can potentially scale commercial opportunity for myself, but also really extend my reach of the things that I knew that I was really passionate about and convicted by across not just a number of companies, but across a number of different industries and countries and going far beyond that. That's essentially how I came to then start being really interested and curious about how to build a platform. It's certainly not my background working in HR tech, but it's been super exciting to get to know what that world is like and how I've been able to apply what I would say is my domain expertise in this new context. Excellent. Awesome backstory. Um, I 
have a sneaking suspicion there's a little bit more to it than that, <laughs> though, because you've given us your interest side of things as well as the commercial aspect of wanting to start a business in this space in this way. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess it's a little bit of a different story to make it your mission, like your life's mission. Yeah. What really drove you to take the plunge and make this your life's work? Yeah, it's interesting that it is often placed to me or positioned to me in that way. The way that I see it is seeing culture is just like the product of me. <laughs> if I really go back to where the seed was first planted, it goes back really to my upbringing, my childhood and my background. I was born into a bit of a broken family. My parents were divorced when I was a baby and I grew up with a single working mum who had migrated over from the Philippines to Australia and she had it hard going, you know. Herself growing up actually was pretty hard times. They were very poor. She used to be someone that would quite literally have to walk into town to collect water to bring back to the family and that's how rough it is. She did live in poverty. It's actually one of the things that I'm most grateful for, the fact that she migrated to Australia and that's given me this incredible opportunity to live life in a completely different way. I really admire her for being so headstrong. That being said, she wasn't necessarily the most available parent to me growing up. Single working mum doing night shifts and that I was needing to be in the care of multiple aunties, uncles, grandparents, family, friends, that sort of thing. But I was always the extra in another household. I didn't have any siblings. And ultimately, we didn't really connect much at all because she grew up in a different culture to me. I grew up as a Westerner in Australia. And, you know, we all already experienced that generational gap with our parents. But when you overlay it with that cultural gap too, amongst other things like personality and when you have hardship thrown into the mix, I think that just accentuates some of the challenges that you can experience. I did feel quite a lot of the time a bit lonely and overlooked and not really valued when I was younger because I felt much like a burden to my, my parents, to people who had to take care of me because no one else would. And yeah, really reason why I created Seeing Culture is because I didn't feel seen myself when I was younger. And that's permeated through all of the different stages in my life, through school, university, and in the workplace. And I guess it introduces the impact and implications of intersectionality, particularly for me. I'm the daughter of a migrant who experienced quite a lot of hardship from a very low socioeconomic background. And then there's the typical things of being a female and <laughs> being Asian and a lot of people, because of those things, having certain ideas or perceptions and stereotypes of what that means. So particularly in the workplace, I've always needed to combat trying to fight through breaking the glass ceiling and breaking the bamboo ceiling. People don't know that one nearly as much. Unless you're Asian, you only really get it. <laughs> but yeah, that was always tricky because where I grew up on the central coast in New South Wales, it was very Anglo-Saxon and so... School, I experienced a bit of bullying and I was very quiet, really, really quiet. 
I wasn't a really good communicator. My parents spoke Tagalog, which is Filipino. I would speak back in English, but we literally did not speak the same language. <laughs> and what that meant is that my vocabulary was somewhat limited because I didn't have that environment at home. And so I only learned everything at school. But because I wasn't very confident in my verbal abilities, it meant that I relied on my ability to read body language, read behavior. And I think ultimately that's why I became so interested in psychology and the motivations behind why people would say things or do things or have certain attitudes as a result of what their background or context was, but then also just reading into where does that come from? Why are they behaving that way? And how can that be changed if you wanted to motivate it in a little bit more of a productive way? Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, by the way. That's a really powerful migrant story that I, I feel like a lot of migrants could resonate with. Certainly, I can as a migrant many times over. There's definitely strains of that that ring true with me. So yes, thank you once again. My next question to riff off of that just a little bit is, yes, it's a story that would resonate strongly with people who have a similar background to yourself or myself who may have faced those prejudices growing up and those challenges coming from a different culture and trying to assimilate into a different culture. Looking at that and looking at the customers that you might try and sell to who don't necessarily have the same story to resonate with and possibly see the value in the kind of product that you're building, how did you validate this with any potential customers, including the customers that you currently already have? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. It started because the chairman of a big consulting company that I used to work very closely with asked me to help support them in relation to identifying potential contenders for their board. And this is because a couple of their board members were leaving and moving on. And they wanted to do some succession planning to identify in the organization who might be some high potential candidates that they could start molding for their purposes on the board. And so he says to me, oh, can you profile the directors at our company? And we want to find out amongst them what they're like. And if we're trying to look for these very specific attributes or strengths within the people that we think would be really suitable for the board, then who are they? And, and I was like, sure, yeah, I can profile them and we can work out what they are, but you might not find the sorts of people that you want for the board at the director level. You might actually find that there's, in fact, a lot of high potential candidates in the lower layers of the business, at least lower levels hierarchically within the business or within different business functions, different offices, etc. The assumption is typically that those within the business, the most senior or have the most experience or hold the most gravitas are the ones that should be in these really top tier leadership positions. When I challenged some of their thinking on this, they were sort of like, okay, yep, we're open to exploring that. But how about we just pilot it with the directors first? Let's get their buy-in, see how it goes, and then we can go from there. And so I did, I piloted it with their directors and I reported back to them these insights on what their strengths were, what their areas of development were. But equally, one of the things that we do different is we base this on largely 360 degree 
perceptions around what people's strengths are. Your own belief about yourself acts as only one data point that feeds into a whole number of different data points that then produces a report. It instigates or at least empowers a bit more of a more equal experience of what it's like to work with someone because you'll know those people that only manage up or they only really care about pleasing one person. They're not so great at treating other people the same. <laughs> and so that was interesting. So we did find in the pilot that there were some people that were stronger than others, of course, but they were effectively just different versions of what already existed in the board. There was very little diversity. Of course, they didn't necessarily think so. But for one, for instance, out of the group of directors, there were about 30-something odd, and I think there was only one female. And they were like, oh, but we're so <laughs> we're so diverse. Oh, okay, sure. We're also all in the same age bracket. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> when they got their results back, beyond the strengths and areas for development, we also highlighted the gap in perception. Here's how you perceive your own strengths to be. Here's how other people perceive your strengths to be. And we did the same for areas of development too. And that really ignited this curiosity in them. And the thing is, because it's all based on 360 degree feedback, it's not something that they can really challenge. It's like, well, it is what it is. That's just the perception of how you've shown up. And maybe you might not think that that's what you believe your strengths or is development to be, but at least that's what's perceived. And ultimately, we make a lot of our decisions based on what our perception is, because perceptions is what forms our reality. In doing so as well, we profile them into different employee archetypes or personas, and they really resonated with them. They were like, oh, yes, this is so me. I can see how I've been described that way. I can see how, yes, these sorts of things would motivate me more in that direction, etc." And because we got that face value validation, that's what got them to be like, okay, let's roll this out to the whole organization. I feel like we could really benefit from everyone being more self-aware, not just us, but also that, that this will enable us to have the insights that will uncover some strengths that we might not realize were there. One of the reasons why they were really open to this is because I challenged their assumptions about me. When I first started working with them, they thought I was X and then I turned out to be Y and they were like, huh, interesting. And I was like, yeah, stereotyping, hey? (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. Very true. Very, very true. All right. So you've touched on how the product idea started to come together with that prototype. Let's talk about the product itself. And I'll have some further questions related to that example that you just gave. To begin with, I'd like you to describe the Scene Culture platform in more detail for us. How would a company make use of this? And similarly, an employee of this company make use of this on a day-to-day basis? So Scene Culture is a diversity, equity, and inclusion platform. And we're quite intentional about positioning ourselves that way rather than an employee engagement platform or a talent intelligence platform because we believe it's really important to highlight the value that diversity, equity, and inclusion brings to an organization. And so in large part, what we're doing with this tool is trying to demonstrate to the world that diversity, equity, inclusion, or DEI for short, isn't just the right thing to do. It's not just a moral obligation. Actually, 
we can prove that it drives and accelerates performance. And so we've got a dashboard that produces some really cool analytics that that shows just this. Effectively, from a business leader point of view, the use cases for it are for things like succession planning, for one, because that was the original motivator for wanting to develop the solution, but then also for trying to identify emerging leaders and top talent that have been overlooked, typically. It has this team designer function that enables us to put in our own selection criteria. Let's just say there's a special project team that we're trying to pull together to execute against a really important project for a really important client. How do we identify the right people to work on this job, to be part of this team? You'd obviously come up with your own criteria. If they need to be this, they need to be that, they need to be a number of different things. The business leader, whoever's making that decision, can actually plug in what their criteria is for the desired attributes or strengths of this team, and it will populate based on the data that we collect who across the whole organization, no matter what level, no matter where they're placed or how senior they are, who are uh, most aligned to those specific strengths. What that means is then you're removing bias from that process of recognizing people because it's largely driven by the data, as long as your selection criteria for what you believe are the key things needed for this team is right, (laughs) and that's being consulted in appropriately, then ultimately you're able to identify who they are. What I really love about it is that it helps shine a light on people that are typically overlooked for the wrong reasons. So an analogy that I often refer to is Moneyball. Moneyball is a famous movie. It's a movie with Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill about baseball, and it's on a true story. It's based on a book that's also called Moneyball, but the byline is the art of winning an unfair game. And what a lot of people don't realize is that this movie is actually about bias and how if we can find ways to mitigate bias, we can actually produce better outcomes for finding the right players to play the right positions in order to get the most wins. Jonah Hill, he effectively does player analysis to identify who players are that have been overlooked and undervalued by other teams. And usually it's because, I don't know, someone pitches funny or whatever it might be. And so because all of these players have been undervalued, they fit in their budget. Fast forward to the end of the movie, they make history and the Oakland A's, the baseball team, they have the longest winning streak. And they're able to do this at like one third of the budget of the Yankees or whoever the opposing big name team is, which is really cool. And a lot of that is is all been driven by this guy who knows nothing about baseball. He literally just runs the numbers and just does this analytics to identify who these people are and by removing bias from that whole process. So we essentially do the same thing. We just do it for teams in organizations rather than in sport because I know nothing about sport. (laughs) That's the premise behind it. And it's only half of the process though. Where my background comes in, because I'm not a data scientist, my area focuses in positive psychology and what are the factors that make someone really high performing, really motivated. It's based on a framework that I've developed that measures people's collective intelligence across five different dimensions. So there's mindset intelligence, how you think or what your attitude is. There's social intelligence, how you relate to other people. 
There's teaming intelligence, how you motivate a group of people and diversity of thought and all of that sort of thing. And then there's also organizational intelligence or business intelligence. So this is more like your commercial acumen and entrepreneurship thinking and systems thinking as well. And then there's domain intelligence, like what are the technical strengths and skills needed? We measure people across those five different dimensions that in our view, we believe comprises a holistic side of assessing someone, not just for their technical hard skills, which is often what quite a lot of existing companies do in this space. We want to recognize people for their strengths, for their values, for all of these other dimensions that that really make them who they are and are the reason why they have this superpower that they do. In knowing and understanding that and measuring them across those things, that's, that's what helps inform the data that then allows us to buy players in organizations. But one of the other key things that we often talk about as well and that we're really trying to demonstrate in the work that we do is that employees are more engaged, motivated and perform better when you've met their three basic psychological needs. And this, I must attribute a self-determination theory by Brian and DC on this. Um, or if you're familiar with the book Drive by Daniel Pink, it's all the same. It's all derived from the same construct that says in their terminology, it's autonomy, competence and relatedness. I still use autonomy. Do we have the independence and flexibility to do work the way that we want to do work, essentially? connection, social connection, or in other words, relatedness? Do we feel connected to the people that we work with, the company that we work for, the values that it has, the purpose that we're helping contribute to? And then the third thing being uh, growth or competence or being able to apply our strengths, which is also synergistic to this idea of self-esteem as well. So are we able to play to our strengths in the work that we do too? And ultimately, if you meet those three different criteria of our three basic psychological needs for autonomy, uh, for connection and growth, that's a much more sustainable way of engaging and retaining employees compared to extrinsic factors such as salaries and bonuses. And that's all derived from positive psychology theory. This is the other thing that we do. We overlay data science with behavior science, use technology as a vehicle to then design and deliver a scalable SaaS solution that empowers this idea of decentralized decision making such that they're using a platform to help uncover who these people are within an organization for what their unique strengths are and how they can drive performance for the organization. Amazing. Wow, what an answer. Okay, I, I have a bunch of questions that flow on from that. We'll start with the one that comes to mind first, based off of what you just mentioned around the intersection between behavioral science and data science. They sound like things that don't necessarily gel well together. What I'd like to know is how does scene culture even begin to quantify things that are behavioral in nature and things like an employee's identity or their personal values, because these can be things that are very personal in nature, not necessarily parts of ourselves that we want to share in the workplace, even if it might benefit our work-life balance, for example. Yeah, it's a great question. And ultimately, it's all subjective, right? And how we measure this is all based on perception, 
And I would argue that although perception doesn't necessarily always equal what we believe is true for ourselves, it also is what informs our reality of how we experience our lives ultimately. And so the way that we measure these more behavioral science factors is we distribute surveys that ask questions to people that say, do you believe that Joe Bloggs has a high willingness to learn and rate on a scale of strongly disagree to strongly agree? All of those questions are attributed to a specific strength, i.e. willingness to learn or self-development, let's just say. We ask people to, to assess themselves and as well as asking other people to assess you on that. If you're an employee, we would ask your manager, your peers, your direct reports or other key stakeholders to respond to this survey where we're capturing all of those insights so that we can understand how you're perceived in the workplace, which ultimately then helps inform what your archetype is within the organization and how you're seen, essentially. That's, in a very short way, the process is a little bit more behind it, but <laughs> for the purposes of this, I'll stick to that. All right. Okay. Now, looking back through the conversation that we've had so far, in the way that you're trying to go about asking your questions and in the original conception of this idea that you trialed with recruiting board members, you've mentioned 360 reviews more than once now. So to start off with, they might be newish to me. I only learned about them a few years ago, but to my understanding, they're not new. And there's quite a few players who operate in this space and make use of 360 reviews. Among them, company that you've mentioned already, Rejig, as well as other well-known big players like CultureAmp. So what I'd like to know then is how does scene culture differentiate from these other players and, and I guess do better? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And what I'll do is I'll respond first to the 360 review piece. It's absolutely not new, getting this 360 degree feedback. The ways in which we treat this differently is because we have it informed decision making rather than just feedback. That's where the crux of it really is. It's more around we get it for the purpose of empowering this idea of decentralized decision-making or democratized decision-making. And so that's the ultimate goal and therefore the difference between traditional 360-degree feedback, which is more of a data collection process than anything, so that you can get different perspectives on something. But it's usually to help inform the individual more than anyone. For us, we use it to help inform the business leader when it comes to making these big organizational change management initiatives. So that's one piece in terms of how we use 360-degree feedback differently and how we're different from the likes of Rejig or CultureAmp. I'm big fans of them, by the way. Actually, companies that I would love to partner with and, you know, we're already having some initial chats with them, which is really nice. One of the key things that I was really conscious of is I don't want to compete against them. I just want to add value to their existing proposition because I love their products. And I've used them myself having worked in HR. The challenge for me was really understanding how we can apply some of the thinking that they already do in a bit more of a nuanced way by understanding the differences that exist within an organization's workforce. How I think about it is implementing employee engagement initiatives, for instance, it's like giving everyone a regular latte at work. 
it's excellent that it's like this free offer that's available to everyone, but there are some people that want soy milk. There are some people that want a long black. There are some people that want tea. And, <laughs> and ultimately what that means is that sometimes if you're someone that wants tea and you get given a regular latte, you're like, well, this is a waste. I'm not going to use it. I don't want to drink it. It then becomes irrelevant to you. And, and ultimately, that's what I think a lot of existing organizations do because traditionally, a lot of successful SaaS companies in the space of employee experience or HR tech, they're designed to be able to scale and therefore everything needs to be standardized, right? For the average, for the whole. I'm trying to do the opposite by trying to understand what are the segments within an organization that make us different. And that's hard, which is a big part of why it hasn't been done. You're probably familiar with this concept of market segmentation, right? Where you identify what different markets, customer segments exist when you're building a product or a service. We effectively do the same thing. And obviously the next layer or the next step for that is then identifying who your buyer personas are, right? So that you can really get to know and understand what are their attitudes, what are their behaviors, what are their lifestyle factors that help inform us so that we can better attract, engage, and retain these buyers. We we do the same thing, but for employees in organizations. So we perform segmentation of a workforce to identify what different archetypes or segments or personas exist within an organization such that we know and understand their strengths, their values, their lifestyles, and the things that make them unique so that we can curate more customized and personalized employee experiences that are a fit to you as an individual, knowing that you have your own preferences and your own strengths and motivations at work. Excellent. Okay. A couple of questions spinning out of that. And please, if this is protected IP, by all means, skirt around the issue. But I'm curious then if you're able to segment so finely, are there any general indicators that might flag potential employee retention issues, as well as any indicators that might contribute to identifying great potential in an employee. For example, looking back to your initial pilot test with recruiting for the board position. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the first part of the question, one indicator might be that there's someone in the organization that in their results has reported that they're highly regarded amongst their peers. So they've rated high on these 360 metrics, which is interesting. But then when we overlay that with how engaged they are or how well they're performing, and we can see that that's quite low, we're like, okay, that's interesting. Why is there a disconnect between how they're perceived by others in terms of their capability and how they're seen for their strengths, and yet their outputs or their engagement levels are low. And so in the media, they would probably call it a quiet quitter because they're doing the bare minimum of what's needed and they're not engaged. But that's what I would call a flight risk because it's someone that's got incredible potential and, and they've been viewed that way, but for whatever reason, they're not performing. This is what highlights the importance of understanding what their personal motivations are so that we can harness that and ultimately, most organizations, what they'll do to try and retain them is give them like a salary increase or give them a bonus or, or whatever. And, and that works really well for about three months. 
And then they're back to baseline again, which is what brings me back to the model I was talking to earlier based on self-determination theory that when you make someone feel very autonomous in their role, connected in their role, and they've got growth opportunities, it's actually that that drives motivation more than anything. So that's my comment and answer to the first part of your question. Right. Previously, I was speaking about the five different dimensions that we measure in our framework, mindset intelligence, social intelligence, teaming intelligence, business intelligence, and domain intelligence. Ultimately, what really matters most and what people are starting to now recognize more and more and more is the intangibles of someone. So ultimately, their mindset and their attitude more than anything. Just to help put some color to this, I'll give you an example. Previously, way back centuries ago, we used to care about the economic capital of our workforce. Like, what do people have that we can acquire that then becomes ours, right? And then it moved on to this idea of intellectual capital. What do people know? What are their qualifications? What is their experience? And how can we bring more of that in? So this is where we really care about big brands and logos and that sort of thing. Then it moved on to this idea of social capital. Who do you know? Who's in your network? Where do you have influence? What sort of communities are you a part of where you've got great reach to have impact in whatever it is that you're doing, right? The next phase is psychological capital. What is your mindset that enables you to have the latter things, right? This also goes back to positive psychology. Fred and Luthens are the people that came up with this term. Um, and ultimately, psychological capital is made up of four different constructs. They are in hope, in efficacy, in resilience, and in optimism, or hero for short. What they've determined anyway in their research is that if you have high levels of each of these four different constructs, then you have the psychological resources that are required for success, because ultimately it is what is deemed as the meta skill in order to be able to obtain all of the other skills, right? People who have that are people who are high potential. If I draw a connection to my framework, I would say that that's mindset intelligence, right? Do these people have the right attitude? Do they have that aligned and moral values and that sort of thing, integrity behind what they do? What is it that that makes their character really strong in a way that enables us to trust their conviction, their resilience, their abilities. And ultimately, it's that that I believe is the key identifier of what makes someone high potential. Fantastic. What an answer. Thank you so much. I feel like I've learned a lot today, which is wonderful. I love learning. So thank you so much for sharing all of this information. In the interest of time, in case you have a hard stop, I'm going to shift us forward out of the product and into looking towards the future of scene culture. Sure. At this point in time, the date we're recording is at the start of March. What are your next steps for scene culture? Well, right now we're actively raising capital. I've got a bridging round that I'm hoping to close in April, and that's ultimately to buy us time so we can build on the traction that we already have and finish the completion of our first phase of the software development, which will enable us to integrate seamlessly into other HR software providers' platforms, such as 
Coltramp or Bamboo HR is one that we're working on at the moment. And ultimately, that's because that that's our growth strategy to scale. If we're able to partner with these other companies, leverage their distribution rather than competing against them because that's not what we want to do. We absolutely do a different thing, but we recognize that perception matters and therefore we need to be seen as their partner rather than their competitor. That's what's right on the agenda in the short term. In the long term, in terms of where seen can maybe will go, right now the focus is being on really trying to disrupt the HR infrastructure, if you like, what we need to do to motivate employees at work. But I want to go beyond that. So if we come back to seeing culture's overarching vision, it's to create a world where everyone feels seen. I've been very intentional in not saying seen at work or in an industry or, you know, in a specific country or or whatever, because I really care about trying to help people feel seen in a variety of different contexts. And what that might mean, for instance, is how can we help enable other professions, for instance, to feel seen that are undervalued? Let's just take teachers as an example. They are so instrumental to our growth and development as people, and yet they are so underpaid or like they're just not valued enough. That's just one example of a way that we could apply it. But also, I really love this idea of seeing startups. How can we identify startups that have high potential, but for whatever reason have been undervalued when they shouldn't be? And how can we shine a spotlight on them to make sure that they're being really credited for their strengths, their value and their potential in a way that helps us mitigate bias. Exactly the same concept, again, just applied in a different way. And I'm going through it quite a lot at the moment because I'm fundraising. I'm recognizing more and more the challenges of what it means to be a female trying to raise capital, um, like an Asian trying to raise capital or migrant and all of these other things. And it's super tricky. And I don't want other people to go through this. And I know so many have gone through it before me and will do after me. But if I can apply some of the stuff that we do in that space, particularly if they've got really purposeful and impactful ideas that could be executed against then I really want to make that happen for them. Amazing. All of this is in total alignment with the Promise podcast, by the way. So if anybody is listening is a purpose-driven founder, I would love to have you on the show. So ordinarily, at this point, I would ask people if there are any dream organizations you'd want to partner with, but you've already mentioned those. So we have Culture Amp, obviously, Rejig, you're in discussions with Bamboo HR. Are there any others that you want to give a shout out to? Workday would be another one. But I guess what would be really cool is also affiliating ourselves with three bodies where we'll have access to a community or a database of key decision makers within organizations like, I don't know, the OECD or something like that. But I also quite like, I don't know, the idea of getting affiliated with TED, for instance. (laughs) I think that would be cool, shining a spotlight on people with incredible ideas and, yeah, making them feel seen. Well, perhaps if there's anybody affiliated with those organizations listening, fingers crossed, we'll get your contact details at the end of the show, and maybe they can reach out to you then. So you said you're raising a bridging round. What work actually remains to build out scene culture to where you want it to go, at least in the near term? 
it's building out that software more than anything. It's been a bit of a struggle. It's obviously a great thing that we have active customers and users, and but it's also a little bit distracting from trying to build the product and because we're trying to do everything at the same time, which can make things a little bit confusing because we're trying to delight our customers as much as we can and really learn from the close relationships that we have from them because we're leveraging it as a whole customer discovery process. But what it means for the team is that I'm always like, hey, can we make this change? And they're like, it's not in scope. (laughs) That's currently the battle at the minute. But I guess the things that need to be done is being able to demonstrate those integrations. For me, in terms of closing the round, it's, it's just getting serious investors being part of the conversation, saying no quick, not stringing us along, (laughs) even though they might like the idea of it, but for whatever reason, they can't justify it. I'm having a little bit of trouble just identifying the right investors at the right timing, because you have your desired investors that are super aligned values wise and this and that, but then the timing's not right. And then, and then you feel like, well, does that mean that I should really try and attract investors that They've got that capital to deploy right now. They're ripe and ready to go and they've built that relationship with you for long enough, but they might not necessarily be the right aspirational fit because of their brand or whatever it might be. But yeah, anyway, that's the thing that I'm navigating at the minute. Mm -hmm. All right. And in order to see through the rest of this build and in order to delight your customers, are there any additional skills that you think you might need at your company? Oh, I need a data scientist. That's one. So if there's anyone out there, (laughs) I can't pay you a lot just right now. But as soon as I close my round, I can. (laughs) Yeah, that that's probably the key thing. And then ultimately, I'm going to also need some support with sales, BD, all of that sort of thing. They're the key skills that we need. But I've been really fortunate in that everyone that's come onto the team has been attracted to joining because of the aligned values and they're just such strong believers of the vision and you you have to meet that you have to believe in that before anything else in fact you don't even have to have the skills as long as you (laughs) as long as you have the right attitude to want to learn the skills because it's solving a problem that you really care about that's also okay fantastic Okay, just a little bit earlier on you talked through the long-term aspirational future of scene culture That is to enable everybody to be seen no matter what context it's in. What do you think the world looks like if everybody is seen? Yeah, it's a great question. No one's asked me that before. I think it looks like a place where work doesn't feel like work anymore. You know, we're just living our best lives because we're earning an income, but we're doing it in such a way that enables us to play to our strengths be connected to something that matters to us and helps us grow as a person, it will just completely dissipate this idea of work. And I feel like it would be a world where, because work isn't just work, we have so much opportunity to innovate and do good at a much more accelerated pace on a much larger scale that's the way the way that I see it. And what I would hope as well, because this is the key distinction with seeing culture, we care more about diversity of thought and diversity of strengths than we do diversity of demographic. Because ultimately what matters is the why behind diversity and the outcomes of it rather than the quotas for it, which I think is where organizations pay too much attention. 
If we lived in a world where people really recognize that value, everyone's psychological well-being would be totally uplifted and I feel like everyone would be operating at their highest potential. It just means that our aptitude for work would be going in a different direction. It's not about productivity anymore and how much we can do in a given amount in time. It's it's about how much positive impact can we make in the world that makes the world for the next generations that come after us a better place to be. Excellent. Really, really lofty goals considering the starting point that we're at at the moment. (laughs) So I guess in order for you to aim that high, what do you think you personally need to do to help drive all of us to, to get there? How do I drive everyone to get there? I am trying to do that through scene culture. In fact, I actually tried to call the company just scene but it costs like a million dollars to get the domain or something. (laughs) So it ended up being seeing culture. But ultimately, the best way to do it is by sharing with the people that you're close with and the people that you care about how you see them and what you think they should be seen for. I don't think we share that enough. It's our innate human need to want to feel seen. And if we could just help give that feeling more and more to people, whether it's through my platform or not, because you can do it literally just by saying to someone, hey, I recognize that you did this really well for that person and I thought that was really cool. It produced this outcome and I think now that that has resulted in X, Y, Z. People just love that sort of stuff, especially when they think it's something that other people haven't noticed. That's the key thing. Awesome. A message to foster connection to wrap up the show. Thank you so much, Nikki. Really uplifting message. And thank you for sharing your great background story. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any social media or contact info with our listeners in case they're interested in getting in touch with you. Yeah, the best thing is to reach me on LinkedIn, Nikki Tagano. That's Nikki, N-I-K-K-I. And we've got a website, sceneculture.com, and our Scene Culture LinkedIn page as well is there, but we're still working on the others at the minute. For now, just come and reach out to me on LinkedIn. Excellent. I'll stick all of the links in the show notes. Amazing. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Nikki, thank you once again. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is promise. Promise.